0: Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for uh, your word and thank you for the preaching of your word. God, thank you that we can um, draw truth from your word and we can be changed because of it. So we are thankful to be in this place and to have your book and to have your Holy Spirit among us and to be with your people. And God, we hope that you'll be glorified today and that you will be worshipped as we Uh, attentively listen to what you might have to say. We ask you help us in this time to be um, honorable to you, to be pleasing to you, glorifying to you. Free us from burdens that may be distraction right now so that we could uh, listen, to be quick to listen, and then to not merely listen, but to do what your Word calls us to do. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is our last sermon in the Genesis series, then we'll move on to a topical series for three weeks called Church Matters, and then we'll move into uh, an expository verse-by-verse series through the book of Colossians, so looking forward to all of that. Genesis, if you remember, means beginnings or origins, so Genesis is, we're not surprised to find it is a book of beginnings we have the beginnings of creation the beginnings of the human race the beginning of human wickedness in genesis chapter 3 and consequently the beginnings of evil in this world and suffering and pain the beginning of divine judgment the beginnings of salvation the beginning of the proclamation of that salvation, that good news, the Gospel, the beginning of the chosen nation of Israel through Abraham, and lots more. So, A lot of beginnings in the book of Genesis. It was written by Moses about 1,400 years before Christ was born. He was writing it to God's people, to Israel, who had recently, within just a few decades, been rescued out of the hands of the Egyptians. They were on the verge of entering into the promised land. They were discouraged. They were wondering maybe whether or not God was still with them and for them and was going to fulfill His promises. And so, much of the motive behind Moses' writing was to enlighten them and to encourage them. To say, hey listen, remember, this is who you are, and this is where you've been, and this is where you came from. More importantly, this is who God is. This is how in spite of you and your sin and your selfishness, God has been good and faithful. This is what God has given you. He's been gracious. So as we read their history, in this book of Genesis, they would have been reading it as we're reading it today. We read about the spread of sin among God's people but we also read about the spread of grace. So you see sin increasing through the book of Genesis, hitting some real high water level marks throughout the book of Genesis. But then you see that God's response continually is grace. Even when He wipes out people from the face of the earth, He preserves a family. And that family increases as God causes it to increase. And He's good to these people. He's kind to these people. He's loving to these people. So the book of Genesis is not about Israel. The book of Genesis is not about creation. The book of Genesis is not about this developing nation. Ultimately or primarily, Genesis is about God. It's a testimony of God. The author's purpose is to focus his readers, which includes Veritas Church now. His purpose was to focus his readers on the spectacular grace of God. His great love and affection for an unlikely bride. For an unlikely people. The same is true today. The Gospel is the story of God's unlikely, uncommon affection for His bride, the church. So when we read Genesis and we read of God's love for these people and God's faithfulness to these people, we can't read the book of Genesis and say, oh, well, God loves them because they're lovely, or God is faithful to them because they're so faithful, or God is giving them a return on their investment, or God is compensating the good that they've done. Of course, God loves them no more than we can say that that's why God loves us. So we have places even throughout the book of Genesis where we don't identify with some and we identify with others as the church we could identify with leah in many ways not rachel rachel who was the object of joseph's affection or jacob's affection but of course she was right because she's the most beautiful woman in the entire bible leah was not the object of his affection but what does god essentially say to his people he says you're leah and i've come after you and i love you you may not expect that i would Because you have eyes like a cow. Cow eyes. He says, I love you and I've set my affection on you. He reminds his people of that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Why has the Lord been so good to us? Why has the Lord set His affection on us? He says, well, it's not because you're some great nation. And the answer is basically as it always is, God loves you because He loves you. Well, why? And we want to turn that inward and find something in us that attracts God to us. But that's not what the gospel teaches. There is nothing in us. That's why God's love is so great. That's why it's so precious to us. Because we don't feel, we can't feel entitled to it, we can't feel as if we deserve it. So now we're at the end of the book of the Genesis. Uh, The last of the patriarchs, Jacob, is now dead. Joseph is going to die here at the end. Joseph, who we've come to know and love. But before Moses is done writing, before God is done writing this book through Moses, there is one last truth to encourage and enlighten this book's readers. Derek Kidner in his commentary on the book of Genesis, went so far to say that Genesis 50 verse 20 is the most theological assertion in the entire book of Genesis. Way to end on a high note, right? He says this is the climax of the book of Genesis right here. His opinion was that the most important theological assertion in the entire book is right here in verse 20 of the last chapter. I'm not sure if it is the most important theological assertion in the entire Bible, but it is certainly an important one. And so it's going to take the bulk of our time this morning. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 50 if you haven't. And let's begin in verse 15. Let's read through these last words all the way through verse 26. Let's understand what's happening. And we'll come back and spend most of our time on verses 18-21 through 21, where this massive theological assertion is made by Joseph. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Joseph's brothers are worried. You remember the great evil they committed against Joseph? Sold him into slavery. Dismissed him from their family and their minds forever. They've been reunited. It's gone well so far. But their fear is that it's gone well because Dad was around. Okay? What do little boys do when Dad's not around? Are little boys prone to behave better when dad is not around? Or worse, when dad is not around? Are grown boys? This is why in Colossians we have to be reminded, hey, you who are working at your job, don't just work really hard when your boss's eye is on you. Right? All of a sudden, you're really busy. Right? You know, All these notes and things are spread out all over your desk. Ten minutes later, you're playing Angry Birds. Same is true with kids, right? Well, these are grown men. But their fear is that Joseph has treated them this way and been gracious and kind to them. And maybe part of that is that dad was still living and now that dad is dead and not around anymore, maybe they're going to feel the full vent of his anger. So they're aware of a couple things, right? They're deeply aware of, number one, their guilt before Joseph. So they know what they deserve. They know what they've done. And they're also secondly, deeply aware of the power their brother has. I mean, Joseph is second in command in Egypt. He can do whatever he wants with these boys. And so, keenly aware of their guilt and keenly aware of the power that Joseph has, what do they do? They plead for mercy. Which is a picture, by the way, of every soul's standing Before a holy God. And the moment you became a Christian was the moment, wasn't it? That you became deeply aware of your guilt before a holy God. And you became deeply aware of the power that He had as judge. And you pleaded for mercy. It's as if you are standing in a courtroom. You have been found guilty of murder. And you are awaiting sentencing. And by the way, the one you murdered is the judge's son. So imagine that. That's us before God. It's also these brothers. It's the magnitude of what is happening when we read of these brothers before their elder brother Joseph. Verse 16, So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Now, Jacob may have told his brothers this. We, we don't have any record of it. Maybe Jacob told them this. They may be making it up. They may feel desperate. Hey, Dad said this. It's a great time to use that line because Dad's dead. It can't be validated. They may just be desperate. Regardless, regardless, what we read now is they do make a very humble and good confession. This is good what they say. They make a humble and good confession. Verse 17, Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your Father. If you would like to know how to confess your sin when you've sinned, this is a good example. This is a good example. This is thorough. It's a deep specific we've committed evil against you joseph what we did it was evil they say it was transgression it was a breaking of god's law we sinned against you we sinned against our dad and we sinned against our almighty father this is what they say in their confession some may need to come a long way when it comes to confession Confession, admittance of guilt is necessary if people are going to be reconciled. And it doesn't cut it to just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what? I'll work with my boys sometimes. I think we just had it over the weekend and something happened. And what I usually do is just put them in a room and tell them to work it out. And sometimes they work it out and sometimes they don't. But when they come out and say they work it out, I say, well, okay, tell me what happened and what you said and what you did. And oftentimes nothing happened. They just said, let's just tell dad that we worked it out and then we can go about playing. And I tell them, well, the problem is you, this is going to come up again in a few minutes. And you've got to be, we've got to get a clean slate here. We've got to reconcile. So and sometimes we have to talk through this. I say, okay, well, let's talk about it. Um, so-and-so, you have anything you need to say? So-and-so, you have anything you need to say? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, well, I'm, I'm blown away by your sincerity as you say that. I'm almost moved to tears. What, what is it you're sorry for? And we see grown-ups do this, right? This is what's kind of sad. I'm sorry for that thing I did. <laughs> it's like pulling teeth here, right? Uh, what thing that you did? Well, you know, the th- I'm, I'm sorry I made you feel bad. Okay? Or sometimes it's worse than that, right? I'm sorry you feel bad. I'm sorry your feelings are hurt. Which is not an apology, right? It's saying, I'm sorry to be living with you because you're so sensitive and get your feelings hurt so easily. And it's making me sorry, really. (laughs) I'm sorry for what? I'm sorry for the things I said. And sometimes we've got to really drill down, right? Say, son, what did you say? I'm sorry I said this. I've watched it with kids. I've watched it with adults. Only then can maybe some walls of hostility actually begin to come down when we admit our guilt. Well, these boys do a good job here. It's thorough. It's specific. We're without excuse. We don't deserve anything good here. But, they plead for mercy. And then we are not surprised by Joseph's response, are we? I wonder if they were. I'll bet they were. I bet they would respond by Joseph's response, but we're not surprised. Big cry baby Joseph, last part of verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Don't you love that about Joseph? There are times to cry, there are times to weep, and he knows the right times. Okay? He, he lets it out when it is appropriate and good and right. This isn't a, a bottle of milk didn't just get spilled on the coffee table, right? This is significant. Now we know that He had forgiven His brothers a long time ago, but how good would that have been for Him to hear this open and humble confession? Have you been on the other end of that before? Maybe you've had someone that sinned against you and you had to come to a point in your life regardless of whether or not they apologized where you had to let it go and you had to move on with your life. And so you forgave them in your heart, we might say. And then maybe unexpectedly, after years, that person came to you and gave a humble and open confession. Do you remember the effect that had on you? It was major, wasn't it? It was major. No, some of you... As I'm saying that, you still long for that person to come to you? And, and you know they could say a few words and it would affect your life dramatically. Well, Joseph is overcome with emotion here. He, he weeps again before his brothers. Joseph wept while they spoke to him. Verse 18-21. through 21, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God as for you? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So we'll come back to that surprising response Verses 18-21. through Let's finish out the chapter. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makur, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, this will sound familiar, like his dad, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, sound familiar? Saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He makes a request to his brothers of what to do with his bones just like his father did. His father said, Carry my bones back to the promised land. Joseph said, Go ahead and put my bones in a coffin here in Egypt. But when God visits you and rescues you and takes you back to the promised land, then gather up my bones and take them with you. So he, like his father, is faithful to the end, is thinking about God's great promises to the very end. And it happened. It happened over four centuries later when God's people are delivered from the Egyptians and taken into the Promised Land, we read Exodus 13, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up My bones with you from here. And then in Joshua 24, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem In the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Now let's move back to verses eighteen through twenty-one, where we find this important statement Joseph makes in verse twenty. But as we listen to all of his words here, In verses 18 through 21, it is amazing, we should say, that Joseph is not bitter. Not angry. He's not filled with resentment over what his brothers have done, over what Potiphar's wife did, over what his friend in prison did. Joseph's life has been rough. He is a man who has suffered greatly. And he suffered greatly at the hands of people who should have loved him. His brothers hated him. Who should have honored him. Remember Potiphar's wife who falsely accused him. Ended up in prison. Made a friendship while he was in prison. Was responsible for this new friend getting released from prison, made one request and that was, hey, when you get out, please remember me. His buddy says, sure, I'll remember you. And he continued to sit day after day in that jail cell. No deliverance. Forgotten. Pain. Suffering. Acquainted with evil. Loneliness. And yet he's not bitter. He's not resentful. He's not exacting revenge. Don't you find that you hold on to offenses far less offensive than these offenses? What ways have people offended you and me that we hold on to? Develops into grudges or resentment or anger or bitterness? Are they these kinds of offenses? Have people sold you into slavery and you're just having a hard time letting it go? Have you ended up in prison because you were falsely accused by someone? Have you been forgotten by your closest friends? Have you felt betrayal like this? Hatred like this? Joseph had, and he had not grown bitter against his brothers. And he had not grown bitter against God. He was not shaking his fist at God. Why me, God? In fact, what does he say? Do not fear to his brothers, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So he spoke kindly to his brothers. He comforted his brothers. Twice he said, do not fear. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. He shows them mercy and he shows them grace. Remember the distinction. Both good. Mercy is when you don't get the bad thing you deserve. And grace is when you get the good thing you don't deserve. And so they're shown mercy and grace. It's not like Joseph just shows them mercy. You deserve to be punished for what you've done. But I'm going to let you go. You've got 10 seconds. I'm going to close my eyes. You run and get as far away from me as you can. I'm going to give you a 10-day head start. It's not just mercy. He actually says in kindness and as He's comforting them, He says, listen, I love you. Forgive you. I want to take care of you. And I want to take care of your kids. And I want to take care of your grandkids. I want to provide for you. That's over the top. Mercy and grace. If Joseph has ever reminded us of Jesus Christ, it is right here right now mercy and grace bound up in the response of joseph to his brothers well what you know and believe determines what you do determines how you live right thinking leads to right living or wrong thinking leads to wrong living at the root of all your behavior is belief So everything that we do in this life, how we live our life is foundationally based in what we believe and what we think to be true about us and about God and about the world we live in. And whatever those things are that we know and believe, that's how we live our life now and make decisions and live. But it's always rooted in what we know and what we believe to be true. So the question is, Seeing how Joseph lives and how he's able to rise above his circumstances and how he's able to not be filled with resentment and bitterness, we should be asking the question, what does he know that enables him to live like that? Or what does he believe that enables him to live like that? And he tells us here in verse 20, he makes, as Derek Kidner said, a theological assertion. And this is what he's telling his brothers is enabling him to extend kindness and love and mercy. What does he say in verse 20? Let's read it again. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that is Joseph's answer to what Sinclair Ferguson calls Joseph's question. And Joseph's question is Joseph's question because if anybody had a right to ask this question, it was Joseph. And that is, God, what are You doing in my life? And this is his answer to that. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's how he has navigated his life. That's been the the ballast for him. God, what are you doing in my life? And, And he believes that whatever evil befalls him while others mean evil against him, God means it for good. And that is what we have to understand if we want to be able to live the way Joseph lived. What are you doing? Have you ever asked that question? God, what are you doing in my life? I'm assuming you have. Kind of a funny thing. We never ask that question when things are going well. We ask it when things are what? When they're not going well. We never ask God, what are you doing in my life when things are going well? Because we just assume things are going to go well. Why wouldn't they? I'm a good person. I'm entitled to good things. I deserve good things. So no one looks up when things are going well and says, God, what are you doing? This just does. I'm so confused. It makes more sense, biblically, to ask the question then. But when things aren't going well, when we're suffering, we're surprised. And we may ask the question that I'm sure Joseph asked over and over again. God, what are You doing in my life? God, where are You right now? Do You still love me? Are you still for me? Suffering provokes these kinds of questions, doesn't it? why is there so much suffering and evil and pain how can there be a good god when my life is the way it is it is the old question of god and evil and joseph asked it he had to ask it over and over again this is a very important question for all of us to answer The this life implications are great. It determines whether you live a life of faith and joy in the midst of suffering, which will come, or you live a life of bitterness and resentment when suffering comes. So it has great this life implications. But it also, how we answer that question, God, what are you doing in my life when my life is not going well, has enormous next life implications, doesn't it? Big next life implications because wrong, and by wrong I mean untruthful, wrong answers to that question have driven many people away from God. This question of suffering and pain and evil has driven many people away from God because they've come up with wrong answers to that question. It's at the root of a lot of atheism. Not only am I not sure if there is a God or not, there is no God. And there can't be a God, many would say, because of this world. Look at the evil. Look at the suffering. Look at the pain. How can there be a good God? this world is proof that there's not a good God. You've heard that right. You don't think Joseph asked that question when he was at the bottom of a pit? One of the earliest ones we have record of bringing up this argument was Epicurus, a Greek philosopher, about two, three hundred years before Christ. He gave a little epigram to describe it. He said, Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is evil. Is he both able and willing? then he is wicked. You know people with that line of reasoning. Does a Christian just have to fold? Does a Christian not have truth to declare in the face of difficult questions? That is a common today atheistic argument. Actually though, it's just a side note, the atheist has a far bigger problem with evil than a Christian does. Because if there is no God, then there's no such thing as evil. Because if there's no God, there is no moral absolute. And if there is no moral absolute, then there is no standard. And there is no right or reason to say whether something is good or evil or right or wrong. Says who? Well, what does the Christian say? Says God. God says this is evil and this is right. God said this is wrong and this is right. And we are created in the image of God and we are given the ability through our consciences as our God is to distinguish between what is right and wrong and good and evil. And the Scriptures are where God makes it abundantly clear and tells us. And so we live our lives based on God's Word and we determine what is okay and not okay and what is right and what is wrong and what is right and what is evil based on what God's Word teaches us. But if you throw all that out and say that there is no God and there is no Bible, then the labels of good and evil are assigned arbitrarily either individually or corporately. They're just social constructs. Well, you may think it's evil, but I don't think it's evil. You may think it's wrong, but I don't think it's wrong. And who are you to tell me it's wrong? What's good for you is not good for me what's good for me may be wrong to you. There is no absolute truth. So in the atheistic world, evil does not exist. They will encounter evil for sure and they will know it, but their universe view cannot account for it. But let's study Joseph's answer. What is Joseph's answer to this big question? how has he grappled with it? He says two things. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So let's break it down. As for you, you meant evil against me. So Joseph did not remain not bitter and not resentful because he convinced himself that his brothers were really good people and they didn't have bad intentions and it was all a big accident. It's okay, I can overlook it. No, he knows that what they did was wicked and evil. And he tells his brothers that. You sinned against me. You committed evil against me. You were evil and you did evil. Well, the Bible expands that and teaches us that it wasn't just Joseph's brothers that were evil and did evil. And Joseph understands this people are evil and do evil. Curiously, this very short sentence that Joseph says is counter many cultural beliefs today. And one, what we would call myth, is that people are good. And people do good. Well, not in a vertical sense, not in, in a before God sense. Well, people are not good. People do not do good things. In fact, we're not even morally neutral, as Pelagius said. We're not even morally neutral, we're corrupt. We sin because we are sinners. As part of our identity, we are a corrupt and totally depraved race. That's why every child that develops any motor skills uses those motor skills to sin. It's not another clean slate that's gone bad. It's not another morally neutral individual that's been corrupted by the shaping influences around it. No, it's a sinner who was going to sin actively. It was only a matter of time. And every single one of us in here would have to nod and admit, I too have gone my own way. And something has to interfere, something heavenly Something from God has to interfere or interrupt or change this course or this is what I'm going to keep doing. And the Bible teaches this. People are evil and do evil. How did evil get in this world? We studied that. Genesis 3, 1-8. through People, Adam and Eve, we, not they, let sin in. Let me read five verses. There's lots we could read, but let me just read five verses that talk about this human nature that is wicked, that is evil, that Joseph knows. Could also call these verses the five verses least likely to find on a t shirt at Berean. Here's five verses Ecclesiastes 9 3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead. Not on a lot of t-shirts. It's true. This is not just a Solomon rant. This is true. This is an inspired word of God. There are more... Isaiah sixty four six. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, we got righteous deeds, don't you? You do good things. They are like Isaiah says, a polluted garment. Do we think the good deeds that we do are somehow going to pacify a God who is angry over our sin? Do we think that our nice words and our nice thoughts and our nice deeds are going to Move God to look the other way and sweep our great sin against Him under the carpet. He says, it's like you're bringing me a pail full of dirty rags. Romans 8-7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now I hear these verses and you hear these verses. You say, well, I'm not this way. I'm not this way. I'm not this way. And By the grace of God. That's the important reason. But there you and I go, but for the grace of God. Job 14.4 Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? In Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. People are evil and do evil. Joseph looks at his brothers and says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But now what is the second thing he says? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Here's what's so important for us to grasp. God meant it for good. He does not say. This is not what this verse says. does not say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God brought something good out of it. This verse is commonly interpreted as if that's what it said. It does not say that as for you, you meant evil against Me, but God figured out a way to use it for good. To bring something good out of it. Because that understanding that understanding communicates that God's plan here didn't get involved until after the fact. And that's when God came in and worked with this material and made something good come out of it. But that's not what Joseph said got him through this suffering life. He goes all the way back. He goes back to meaning. He says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. What is the ballast? He says, I know and I knew that everything that's happened in my life, even the wicked and evil things that you did to me, brothers, I know it's all a part of God's plan. Not only that, but that God's plan for me is a good plan. Because He loves me. So I was able to bear some really painful things in my life because I knew regardless of your wicked, evil intentions, God had perfect, good, pure intentions. And it was all going to work out. So he is asserting this theological truth. God is in control of the evil people do. People are evil and do evil. God is not evil and He does not do evil. But, as Joseph clearly says, God is in control of the evil people do. We would say this is part of, formally speaking, the doctrine of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. God is totally sovereign. God is totally in control. It's what it means for God to be sovereign. God does not take His hands off anything or compartmentalize certain facets of the universe and say, I choose not to be sovereign over those things. Because if He did, He would cease to be sovereign. God is sovereign. And God is in control over all things, including, and imagine this for Joseph, including the sinful actions of His brothers. That is something God had control over. So that Joseph looks back and says, God meant it. Planned for it. My good. While Joseph thinks of the evil against him, and think of evil that's been committed against you. When Joseph thinks of the evil against him, he does not think that God did it. That's not what he's saying. He does not think that God conceived Of this plan. He does not think that God carried this plan out. He makes it very clear that's what his brothers did. But he does believe it was all a part of God's plan. From the beginning, he doesn't believe it was outside God's will. He puts, if you will, God on the hook. for the suffering that he's endured in his life. Now often, this would be another myth that we should dispel, often well-meaning Christians look into the eyes of someone suffering and try to take God off the hook at this point. So tempting to do. Well-meaning Christians, I've done it, maybe you've done it, And when you're standing or sitting before someone with tears in their eyes and they're suffering immeasurable pain, they've maybe been the victims of unspeakable evil. Our instinct is to take God off the hook and to try to detach God completely from it. To say God had nothing to do with this. To say that this has nothing to do with God's plan that this is not a part of God's plan for your life? And the moment that may sound good. It's not true. But it may sound good in the moment. But we dishonor God when we comfort people by denying His sovereignty. We dishonor God. And that may help somebody try to take God off the hook. Some has gone so far as to say a popular, growing in popularity, heresy today, open theism, which takes us so far as to say God doesn't even know the future. He's surprised by the bad things that happen to you. But when you tell somebody that the suffering that they're going through is not a part of God's plan for their life, you comfort them, you do, for about five minutes. And it's a superficial comfort. Because it is not ultimately encouraging to think that God just dropped the ball in their life. And that massive suffering can happen in their life and there's nothing God can do about it that God has a plan, but His plan is being thwarted by others. When you're in the middle of the suffering, does that sound like a God you can go to and ask for help? There's nothing that God can do. He may just drop the ball again. It may be difficult. We're working through it. But it is not ultimately helpful. Others actually, I don't know if you're aware, most in evangelicalism today would solve this problem by saying that evil and pain and suffering is just the unfortunate but necessary byproduct of free will. And so there's no purpose in it. And that's not true. And that's not helpful. God is sovereign over suffering. Joseph understands that. God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over evil. Martin Luther put this in a provocative way because he put everything in a provocative way. And he said, you have to remember that the devil is God's devil. He was saying the devil is no co-equal to God. But the good things that happen in your life are God, and the bad things that happen in your life are Satan, and they're duking it out. And all God wants is just happy, 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 over and over and over again. And Satan keeps winning these battles here and there, but ultimately God figures out how to use it in a good way. That's not the message of scriptures. The devil is a dog on God's leash. He's a dog. And he doesn't do anything without God's permission. Remember reading about that in the story of Job? That wasn't an anomaly. Some more verses. Six of them I'll run through quickly. Or we could call these six more verses you're not likely to find on a t-shirt. And these are showing us God is sovereign. God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over evil. God is sovereign even over the purposes of the devil. Now just let Scripture speak for itself. Lamentations 3:37 and 38, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Daniel four thirty five, which by the way, if you want to memorize a verse that speaks most clearly about the sovereignty of God, I think this is it. Daniel four thirty five. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Isaiah forty five seven. I form light and create darkness; I make well being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos three six Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Deuteronomy 32.39 There is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Exodus 4.11 Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seeing, or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Do you know people who have disabilities they were born with? They've never seen. Maybe they've never heard. It's led to much suffering in their life. And it is according to God's plan. Exodus 4.11 And, God is good. So good. So good. We don't have the time that we may like to take to talk about how there can be an evil world and how there can be a world filled with such suffering and how a good God can allow such a thing. We don't have time to explore all of that. How God is displaying His glory. How God is displaying His justice. How God is making clear the horror of our sin through evil and wickedness that we can't deny in the world. How the ultimate purpose of suffering in the world is so that God could come and suffer to end suffering. Think about that. The answer to Why is there so much suffering in the world? Can't be that God is a mean God or not a good God because He is the one who came and suffered most greatly in this world. And why? To end suffering. What Joseph is saying is people are evil. They do evil. You meant evil against me. And yet, God is in control of the evil people do. God meant it. Which means, and here's the ballast for Joseph, suffering is a part of God's good plan. Joseph knew that. Suffering is a part of God's good plan. He saw it coming together to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He saw that salvation has come by suffering. Salvation of many through the suffering of one. That should sound familiar. He knew that if he hadn't suffered, all these people would not have been saved. And so you see Joseph saying things like that. That I have suffered greatly and I know God's hand is behind this suffering, but I know He has good purposes, so I'm going to love Him and praise Him. Job says the same thing in Job 13.15 or 15.13. He says, though you slay me, yet I will hope in you. Because God, my hope is in You. I love You. I have totally believe that everything You do is for my good. So that even if You kill me, God, I'm going to be hoping in You and trusting You. Even if You kill me, that's not going to make me think that You're evil and wicked and not in control. Yet I will praise You. Yet I will hope in You. So that's Joseph. That's job but what about you and me can we apply this to ourselves do we have the liberty to do that maybe this was just joseph's life maybe it just applied to him well you know there's a new testament version of genesis 50 20 maybe god thought we might think this was only good news for joseph and so he inspired Paul to write in Romans chapter 8 verse 28 what I would call the New Testament version of Genesis 50:20. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Does that say the same thing? I think it does. Joseph was able to look at his life and see God's hand behind everything, even the hard things, and say that all these things are working together for my good. God meant them for me because He loves me. And the Roman Christians are reminded of the same thing. Who's Romans 8.28 for? Because you don't all get to have that verse. It does not say that God is working all things together for good for everyone. Not for sons of disobedience. Not for objects of wrath. Not for those who follow the cravings of sinful man and the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2. But who is this for? This is motivation, by the way, to turn to Christ. For those who love God and... Those who are called according to His purpose. Well, if you're called according to His purpose, you love God. And if you love God, you've been called according to His purpose. So has God called you? Has God called you out of darkness and into light? And have you responded by loving Him? Have you heard the Gospel proclaimed? Have you heard the good news? Have you rejected it and spurned it? Or have you accepted it and believed it and loved God? Have you by faith and repentance, turned from your sin and turned to Jesus? Have you accepted what you deserve before a holy God? And have you surrendered your life completely to Him to make Him Lord, Savior, and treasure over all your days? If you have, then you get this verse. If you have not, you don't get this verse. You can't put it on your t-shirt or your bumper sticker. You have to love God But if you do, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That is a really big statement. Because what is included, this is a really deep question, right? We're going to get very theological, he says sarcastically. What is included? What in your life? What circumstances in your life are included in all things? All of them. You mean the good things? No. The bad things too. The easy things? No, the hard things too. Suffering, pain, evil, all of it. All of it. God is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now remember, remember first of all, a couple what I hope are helpful little things to remember as we close. First of all, that we only see a small piece of the picture of what God is doing. Okay, Christians, you've got to live by faith and not by sight. This doesn't mean that you're always going to have this figured out. It doesn't mean that when Joseph was in the bottom of that pit, he said, oh, I totally get it. I totally see how this is all going to work together. I'll probably be prime minister of Egypt in a few years and save a bunch of people. No, he knew by faith that what others were meaning for evil, God was meaning for good. We sing a song called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. and He does. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Now here's the thing, when God plants His footsteps in the sea and God moves in your life, the sea quickly covers up those footprints. You can't see where it's coming from. Where it's going. So I think later in that song, it says blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. We scan His work, try to figure out what God is doing in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. Now, when did He make it plain for Joseph? Chapter 50, verse 20? Maybe earlier we saw the pieces start to come together. But before then, it was by faith. It's also helpful to remember that God is always working in a variety of people. So when we're asking that question, God, what are you doing in my life? The great thing is not to become obsessed with what God is doing in my life, but to yield to His purposes in my life so that He may use my life, fit my life into purposes of blessing and grace for others. A lot of times, the things that God is doing in your life that you don't understand, and if He told you, you wouldn't even understand it. And you wonder, God, what are you doing in my life? He may be thinking, well, I'm doing this in your life, but I'm also, through this, doing something in someone else's life. Who's watching you suffer? Who's connected to you? Or I'm doing this so that someday you're going to be able to comfort somebody else who comes into the same situation that you're in. Or Paul, when he writes to the Romans, understands that his suffering is for them. He says, we're being killed all day for you. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, how does that work? Well, they were suffering greatly and they were suffering with faithfulness and joy so that others could be totally encouraged that God really is good. God really does have a plan. And then finally, here, Crystal clear what Joseph is saying. What man means for evil to destroy God's purposes, God irreversibly means and uses for good. And that's different than saying what man means for evil to destroy God's purposes. In spite of that, God still accomplishes His good purposes. It's different than that. It's not saying that God accomplishes His good purposes in spite of people's evil purposes. It says that God accomplishes His good purposes through the evil purposes of man. Now, can you think of the greatest place that ever took place? at the center of the Gospel that we preach and proclaim week in and week out is the very issue of evil and the sovereignty of God. That is where they meet most clearly and most profoundly is on the cross. On the cross, we find the greatest evil and the greatest good. The greatest evil ever took place on the cross. The murder of God. Nothing more evil has ever been done. The greatest evil took place on the cross and the greatest good took place on the cross. The salvation of God's people. It was the evil plans of men that God meant for good. So on the cross, Satan meant to crush God. And friends, what happened on the cross? God crushed Satan. All of it planned by God. To the very last detail. I'll close with one of many verses that tells us so. Acts 4. 27 and following. For truly in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for this truth, God. That in this world with devils filled, we can know that Your truth abides. God, and we can know that the evil that comes our way is not evil that has somehow made its way through Your defenses. But that graciously, God, You have spread Your hands And You have let for very good reasons some of that darkness through. And we can know and trust now that there's meaning in it. That there's purpose in it. So God, we pray that You would not allow us to waste our suffering. That we wouldn't scan Your work in vain, but that we would trust You that we would not come up with wrong views of what we're going through to try and comfort ourselves in the short term, but we would hold tightly to Your clear truth. God, I pray for those who are suffering now or who will suffer greatly, that they would be encouraged and emboldened to know That Your plan is being worked out in their life. And Your plan is perfect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.